I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, September 14th, 2011. Okay, today we are going to do our light edition for the week. I am out of the studio today. So you're listening to Memorex. Memorex, what's that? What's Memorex? It just shows that I'm old. They, you know, they used to say, "Is it live or is it Memorex?" It's, it means it's recorded. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which: help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to examine it, look at it, compare it to what the Bible says. And if it comes up wanting, well, then we let you know that it comes up wanting. And uh, part of what we do here, since this is really all about teaching, is uh, we, you know, on a weekly basis, you know, I offer good lectures on good topics, good apologetic topics, historical theology topics, things like that to help round you out uh, theologically so that, um, you are even more astute in your understanding of the Bible and in your ability to uh, engage in good, solid biblical discernment. Now, this week we're going to continue with the series of lectures that we've been playing by Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis on Christianity in America. This is uh, lesson number three. It's entitled uh, The 19th Century Romantics and Radicals. Romantics and Radicals. So without any further ado, here is Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis. Well, just as a brief introduction, uh, remember, uh, as I tell my students, be thinking of questions because I'll certainly, as I, as I run through this and the amount of time I'm running from, uh, you know, basically, you know, 1620 to 2011 in just a few weeks. And so obviously there are so many gaps uh, that I, I just, I have to pick and choose. And so when you can ask questions, uh, I can start to, to narrow down. So, uh, here we go. Last week, or two weeks ago, we started with the first pilgrims, right? We looked at 1620 and 1630. We looked at the Mayflower and the Arbella. And I said the Mayflower and the pilgrims and all that stuff you learn as a kid. 
that's they were sort of outliers. That was kind of a strange group. They were leaving England at a time that there was a good bit of religious tolerance. Uh, they were radicals. And then in 1630, of course, we talked about John Winthrop and a model of Christian charity. And if you are in school or if you have children uh, in school and they're learning all about the pilgrims and the Mayflower, point them in the direction of a model of Christian charity. Not that the theology is great, but that is a very significant text <clears throat> for looking at many call it the Urtext, or the fundamental text uh, of America and American Christianity. And then last week, we, we're into the 1700s. And we talked about what a weird century that is, and how Christians are really afraid of the 1700s. Oh, that's the Enlightenment. That's where everything went down the toilet. Ooh, that's bad. And I told you, actually, that Enlightenment was quite good for a lot of things. And what was the bad stuff? Revivalism. Yeah, revivalism was, was the bad stuff. Revivalism was the stuff that would stick with us and stick with the church, whereas some of the, the, the notions of the Enlightenment, which was a, a kind of tough-mindedness, a willing to engage in, in, in thought and ideas, the church went away from that. And that's the beginning of the gulf between the radicals, the revivalists, the evangelicals generally, and the so-called modernists or what have you. Well, today, we're going to move into the 19th century, the 1800s, and we're going to look at just the first half. Now, it may seem somewhat counterintuitive in a series that's looking somewhat at American history that I would find it appropriate to jump from the mid-18th century, 1750-ish, to the beginning and the middle of the 19th century, the beginning of the 1800s and the middle of the 1900s. After all, this means I'm skipping the War of American Independence, and I'm coming right up to the brink of the Civil War without mentioning it. And you say, how can you do American history without those two things? Because for our purposes, they're not that significant. Sorry. What we're looking at is the history of uh, Christianity in America. The battles, generals, political discussions are a backdrop for the history of evangelicalism and Christianity in America. Now, these momentous events, of course, sent shockwaves through the communities and churches. And it's the religious fervor before the War of, Mini and the War of American Independence. That stuff we looked at last week, right? The mid-1700s, the first uh, Great Awakening. That was important, and it led through the War of American Independence. And then I'm going to give you a very interesting stat in a second. It does, do, it does do us well to remember that in the 1800s, the success of American Christianity, let alone anything American, would survive. Remember, this is the early 1800s. America is a brand new country. America is a brand new political experiment. And so to just think it's sort of inevitable that everything would progress and be lovely isn't right. Who knew at the time that America and American Christianity would become what it is today. We have to remember that there were real European enemies in France and Britain, depending on who you ask. The story, of course, is a grand one. The story of American history. It's, it's not what I'm, I'm going into, as I mentioned. Uh, if you are looking for good American history, I will tell you, Joseph Ellis and Gordon Wood, uh, these are two very good historians uh, on the stuff that I'm skipping over. 
So if you want to hear more about uh, the, you know, the, the War of Independence and the like, that's where you'll go. Now, I'm going to remind you, as I remind you seemingly every week, that my job, both in the university and in a parish setting, is to be selective and critical. There is no way that I can be encyclopedic and, and uh, exhaustive. I've got to be selective. And so I must do one of the more difficult jobs that a historian has. That before I can start putting words down on a piece of paper, I have to isolate questions and problems with an overall topic at hand. That topic, of course, being American Christianity. And there's particular questions in each time period, and so then I need to narrow down those particular questions. And so that's sort of the backdrop. Why you might say, well, uh, uh, Dan, you're missing this, and why didn't you talk about that? Well, you can ask me in question and answers, but there's a reason why I'm skipping some things, because I don't think it absolutely pertinent. And so thus, the overall question that we're looking at, the overall question of this series is how did the American Protestant church turn into what it is today? Many have praised the the new measures that are used today, the evangelical zeal of some Christians, and the innovation in churches that has uh, attracted so many. Even the numbers of how many Americans go to church every Sunday, it seems so positive. After all, the, the number of Americans attending church today is vastly higher than it's been in previous decades and in previous centuries. Americans are going to church in droves today. <laughs> well, that's for, that's for later. So are we better off? Are we more spiritual? Are we more of a Christian nation now more than we've ever been in the past? It would be really nice to plug numbers into an equation and to take a survey and have a a sociologist and a theologian uh, analyze the data and tell us yes or no, we are more of a Christian nation, or no, uh, we're not. But the historian tends to distrust such data coming from the social scientists. And as Lutherans, remember we embrace a theology of the cross, in which we, where we know where Christ is present. We know when he's present. In, in simple means, we know that he can work and forgive even the, the Judas Iscariots and the John Wilkes Booths of the world. And so we can't necessarily measure, um, is America a more Christian nation than it used to be? Maybe it is, maybe it's not. But remember, uh, as Lutherans with a theology of the cross that those bad guys can be just as saved and just as spiritual as, as Ned Flanders or, a, uh, or uh, the megachurch worship leader. I'll let George Barna and others deal with those kinds of questions because I've got some historical questions to ask and to hopefully answer and perhaps shed more light on American Christianity uh, that's perhaps more important than the latest Pew or Gallup uh, poll. So, that's where we're going today. We're going to ask ourselves, what happened in the 19th century that is so important that myself, being a history professor, would say, leave that out, leave that out, but no, we need to focus on this. Well, as uh, historians, 
always have the task of doing. We don't just sort of bore you with names and dates one after the other, but we have to have questions and problems. So if you're looking at your handout, I have questions and problems. And that's where the historian starts. And so the first question is, why, I mean, why at the end of the, the 1700s was church attendance, self-reported church attendance at 10 to 15 percent? What? No, those were the good guys. That was when everyone was really pious and they wore the funny hats and the shirts. and the, Right? That's when everyone went to church. The spiritual golden days. 10 to 15 percent of the American population went to church. That number should, should strike you. And so, of course, the historian wants to ask, why? We don't know for certain, but I think we've got some answers. Is it because there was a lack of churches? Maybe. Was there a lack of clergy to fill the churches? Yeah, we do know that that was part of the case, that it was sometimes just hard to get to church. Fair enough. But I think it's fair also, after last week's talk, to say that perhaps there was a lack of reason to go. After that first great awakening, when people were filled with evangelical zeal and they'd seen the mountaintop, what tends to happen? There's a crash. And so with all the zeal of the Edwards and, and the like, it died. Right? That's, that's what evangelical zeal sometimes gives us. It, it, it builds us up and then it falls. Well, here's another question. As I, I look at that strange thing that we'll look at, that only 10 to 15% of the population was going to church, and, and right after that, around the 1830s and in these early 1800s, what all pops up at the same time? Look at the list on your handout. This should really cause you to wonder what on earth is going on, what on earth was in the water, because in a short time period, Seventh-day Adventists, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Unitarian Universalists, Christian Scientists, Millerites, the Baha'i, the Disciples of Christ, and the Brethren, all in a very short amount of time, come on the scene. There's got to be more than just coincidence there. That in the early 19th century, early to mid-19th century, all of these aberrations, all of these heresies pop up. And like I, I, I don't think it was just something in the water. Uh, historians have also noticed that at this time period, we start to, to see this thing that's called the American church and American Christianity. We don't use this term really before then. It's, it's English or it's continental Christianity. But in the, in the beginning, in the mid-1800s, we find this new beast called American Christianity. And who can remember from before, there was a famous Frenchman named Alexis de Tocqueville. He comes to America to study the prisons. He thinks that's boring. So he starts walking around and looking at Americans, and he makes up a word. What, he invents a word to describe Americans. What's that word? individualism we got the, we're the first ones we're the individualists and he looked at american christianity and thought it was quite curious a quick note i got in a little bit of trouble um last week um and sometimes i do at the, at the university sometimes i use words and these words I use in the classical sense, but they have pejorative or workaday meaning. So let me just be very clear to the, the people on the internets and, and you as well. When I say something is peculiar, 
that just means it's a little different, a little, a little off. When I say something is eccentric, I mean it's outside the circle. These are, there are peculiar and eccentric churches. Evangelicals are peculiar and eccentric. Now, when I talk about Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists, they're heretics. When I talk about Charles Finney today, heretic. And I'll, yes, absolutely, and I'll, I'll tell you why uh, later. Uh, especially Charles Finney, someone who has statues all over America, who people praise as a great evangelist. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. But there is a, the birth in this time period of a particularly American church. Why is that? Well, first of all, there's that thing down there that says historical stuff that's more important than you think. And perhaps some of you saw Louisiana Purchase and Monroe Doctrine and thought, oh my God. Why is this so important, the Louisiana Purchase and the Monroe Doctrine? Simple. Manifest destiny. The opening of the West. The frontier. And with it, frontier religion. That's why it's so important. Because America took over. America becomes, is starting to become, its distinct uh, part of a continent. And so it's very important that these things happened. Uh, Obviously, the Louisiana Purchase, 1803, that's very significant for the area we got. Then the Monroe Doctrine, if you're not familiar with that, that's the Americans saying, hey, we're going to go ahead and be Americans. You guys go ahead and be Europeans. And we're going to stick to ourselves and and develop a peculiar and eccentric uh, theology. See how I used those? Wasn't pejorative. (laughs) Kind of wasn't pejorative. Wait till later when I get really mad. Okay. What else happens? During the same time period, the population in the United States goes beyond the population of the United Kingdom. We were just the little colonists, the little brothers and sisters. Well, now we got more. And we are eccentric and peculiar. And so what makes this particular to America and American Christianity? Well, first of all, in the frontier, in all this new space, we needed pastors. And the, the people that were moving into the frontier were itinerant preachers or, or circuit preachers. They tended to be Methodists and Baptists. And you can ask later why that's quite significant. And here's what's interesting, and it's, it's happened throughout the history of the church. When you need churches fast and you need pastors fast, what do you do? Online seminaries? <laughs> nope. Not even that. <laughs> it's bad enough. You've got... Pastor. Oh, you feel like a pastor? Pastor. Pastor. Right? They, they, uneducated pastors with bad theology. And they were the ones on the horses riding around, spreading the news to, uh, to these frontier Americans. I did not say good news. What else was there? There was this individual, individualism that we talked about. And then there's this funny phrase, I'm going to throw it at you, and, well, I'll just throw it at you. De Tocqueville, the guy I like so much, said something about Americans. He said, all Americans are Cartesians. Now, maybe Dan Dean and Dale Brandt, they look at ah, the following of Descartes. And let me tell you about What do they mean by that? They want something certain and something new and want to discard the past. They wanted to do it on their own. They didn't want to look to the advice of the the past. 
Now, it's a very small, very small part of Descartes' uh, uh, philosophy, but, but de, de Tocqueville says, listen, Americans are Cartesians even though they've never read Descartes before. They want to discard the past and go to uh, infinity and beyond. <laughs> Sorry, I have a two-year-old and that thing's on all the time. <laughs> Also of significance is the year 1848. And 1848 is a very significant year because coming up to 1848, we have revolutions in Europe. There are revolutions from Spain to Germany to France, and I'm not going to talk about those. Go find a book on history. But what happens? Immigration. Immigration in, in waves. Not a bad thing, but it's going to create this sort of peculiar cauldron of, of people in a sort of grab bag of various theologies that America, where Americans are very good at this, we sort of pick and choose like a buffet what parts we like. There is a group called the Darbyites, uh, sometimes also referred to as the Brethren. Is anyone familiar with the name Darby? Or maybe you're familiar with the name Schofield. Yeah. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, the Schofield <laughs> Reference Bible, right? A lot of, sometimes you hold those around. Um, it's the Word of God until you get into the, the footnotes. Um, that's dispensationalism. And we're going to talk about that later because that is, is core to the fundamentalist movement, which hasn't begun. That's around 1870. That's, that's for another time. But these various immigrants are bringing various theologies. They're coming in waves, partly because of the revolutions in 1848 and before. And so America is becoming a very peculiar nation. We think that perhaps the 21st century or the end of the 20th century was bad economically. We think about the downturn today and all the news about the debt ceiling. Let me tell you about the 19th century. There were so many economic crises and you probably think of the Great Depression. Oh, that was a bad time. Uh, no, there were five serious financial crises in the 19th century. America was just starting. As I said, don't think it inevitable that America would continue and grow. It's a baby nation. And there are five major crises that have to do with speculation and borrowing and all the same stuff that always causes these, uh, these crises. Well, what does this lead to, this historical stuff that's more important than you think? It leads to the social gospel. People are destitute. People don't have money. People have real problems today. And so they need a gospel that's going to fix them. It's going to help them. It's going to give them their better life today. It's going to give them purpose to drive them. Right? That's, that's what you want when things are bad. You want a gospel that works quick. Forgiveness, that, 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 that. no, I need answers. And so the social gospel is going to become very central to Christianity in America. And I shouldn't even use the word gospel. to the social talk. Secondly, a lot of people out of work. No cable television. What do you do? Hey, there's a preacher in town and he's does a lot of this kind of stuff and does a lot of this kind of stuff. You must be interesting and have something to say. Not always. Um, there, there, was audi- there were audiences. There were audiences for fiery preachers preaching new things, scary things, promising things. And then what else happens in times of trouble? We've seen it since the 16th century, and it was actually before as well. 
millennialism, right? The number of people who claim the world is going to end on this date. Oh, the Adventists, the Millerites, all these groups all had dates that the world was going to end. If ever your pastor tells you, uh, if something happens and Pastor Rody starts telling us that in 2012, on February 17th, the earth is going to end, um, we'll just take him out in the back. And, and that's, <laughs> I mean, we won't hurt him. We'll just have him leave. Uh, because whenever a pastor starts giving dates, all right, pastor, I should have used the pastor that wasn't here. Uh, if that, that will, uh, that, yeah, that, 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 that's a problem, okay? Just put that in your notepad. When a pastor starts telling us when Jesus is coming back, run away. Now, as we saw last week, the theme for last week was rationalism, the Enlightenment, and revivalism, Jonathan Edwards. So, rationalism, revivalism. Well, the church makes an even bigger chasm, or American culture makes an even bigger chasm in the 1800s. What's that chasm? That's the theme for today. That's romanticism. And radicalism. All the R's were not... I didn't intend to do that to be clever. They just happen to all start with R's. Romanticism and radicalism. Christians are scared of, of rationalism. Don't, don't be that scared. Talk to one of our philosophers. If you want to find something that's dangerous in American culture, romanticism. Romanticism. If you're not familiar with what I mean by romanticism... Uh, I put a short definition there for you because it's a movement in literature and art and, and you don't need to know all of that who ate applesauce, but it's important because it's a reaction, a secular in many ways reaction to rationalism. Um, think of Schleiermacher and theology. Think of Goethe and Germany. Think of Wordsworth and Blake and Coleridge. What's romanticism? Unlike rationalism, which in many ways just asks tough questions and sometimes has good answers and sometimes has bad answers. Romanticism moves away from that. It moves in the direction of the spontaneous, the unfettered, the unchained, the subjective, the imaginative, the emotional, the inspirational, the heroic. That's much more dangerous to the Christian church than rationalism. Romanticism. And if the revivals of Edwards were middling to bad, the radical revivalism of the Second Great Awakening is downright heretical. So the first question that I put on there, and this is a question that we can ask today, but it was a question that people were asking then. That is, was there a spiritual crisis? Right? This happened since the beginning of the church. Everyone always complains that there's a spiritual crisis. Today is the worst time it's ever been because of this or that or this or that. Um, was there a spiritual crisis in America in the early 1800s, as suggested by many of the leading evangelists? Um, that's hard to tell. <clears throat> I don't know exactly what spiritual crises look like. Uh, but sure, 10 to 15% of the population was going to church. There's a problem. So... <clears throat> what happened? <clears throat> well, people tried to fix it. How did they fix it? With <clears throat> the reintroduction of catechism and confessions, declarative statements, theology? No. They tried to fix it with business models, with hipper music, 
with signs and wonders. Yeah? Sound familiar? There's a, a man, uh, this is a, as a side note, but it's quite interesting. Um, in the, the, the 20th century, uh, a man named Said Qutub. Um, Said Qutub was, it was uh, one of the major political thinkers in the Middle East. Um, he's one of the, the founders, ideologically, of, of Al-Qaeda. So now I'm sounding like Dr. Francisco. Uh, but he came to America. Very interesting. Said Qutub came to America, and he wrote a pamphlet, a book, a little small book, called The America That I Have Seen. So he goes back to, to Egypt, and he, he tells uh, the various Muslims and, and, and Arabs uh, what America is like. And there is a huge part in this little book that he wrote called The America That I Have Seen about the church and American Christianity. And I'm usually not going to agree with um, a a radical uh, Muslim, but he nailed it. He couldn't believe the neon signs and the music and the irreverence and the slick pastors promising this now. It's really an indictment of American Christianity. Well, that was the answer that the 18th century, the, the Second Great Awakening gave. It wasn't catechesis. It wasn't confessions. It was, it was business models, promises of your better life now, a different kind of music, and signs and wonders. Is that, is, as if that could fix the church. All right, we're going to pause right there and uh, take a break, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so on my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. It's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Can I help you? Yes. Do you have a copy of 30 Days in the Desert to Learn Your Purpose and to Cast the Vision to the Ignorant Masses by S. Furtick QWZ? Uh, well, I don't know the book, sir. Uh, never mind, never mind. How about 101 Ways to Build a Mega Church and Make Big Bucks? I... Well, some American gentleman whose name eludes me at the moment. I believe his last name rhymes with Shin. Uh, no, well, we haven't gotten in stock, sir. <sighs> oh, well, not to worry, not to worry. Can you help me with the screw tape letters? Ah, yes. C.S. Lewis. No. I beg your pardon? No, Harold Wapcat. I... I think you'll find C.S. Lewis wrote the screw tape letters. Sir. No, no, Lewis wrote the screw tape letters with one C. This is the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. 
the screw tape letters with two C's. Yes, I should have said that. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. Hmm. Funny, you've got a lot of books here. Yes, we do, but we don't have the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. Hmm. Pity, it's more thorough than Lewis's. More thorough? Yes, I, I wonder if it might be worth looking through all of your screw tape letters. No, sir, all of our screw tape letters have one C. Are you sh- quite sure? Quite. Hmm. Not worth just looking. Definitely not. All right. How about The Great Divorce? Yes, well, we have that. That's G-R-A-T-E, Divorce, but also by Harold Wapcat. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. We don't have anything by Harold Wapcat. Actually, he's not very popular. Not the problem of pain. That's P-R-O-A-B-L-U-M. No. The Chronicles of Narnia with a K. No. How about Out of the Violent Planet? Definitely not. Sorry to trouble you. Not at all. Good morning. Good morning. Oh! Yes, I wonder if you might have a copy of Perilous Landra. No, as I said before, we're right out of Harold Wapcat. No, not Harold Wapcat. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Yes. You mean Perilandra. No, Perilous Landra by C.S. Lewis. That's Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian. No, well, we don't have Perilous Landra by C.S. Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian. And perhaps to save time, I should add that we don't have Dandy Landra by C.S. Lewis or the penultimate battle by Clive Staples' Chewbacca, or even Out of the Silent but Deadly Planet by B.S. Lewis with four eyes and a silent Q. What a pity. That's my favorite. Why don't you try Zondervan? I, I did. They sent me here. Did they? I, I wonder. Oh, do go on, please. Yes, I-, I wonder if you might have the amazing adventures of Pastor Perry Noble and his intrepid spaniel Stig amongst the giant purpose-driven pygmies of Beckles. Volume 8. No. Don't have that funny. Got a lot of books here. Well, I mustn't keep you standing here. Thank you. Oh, well, do you have... No, no, we haven't. No, we haven't. But, 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 Sorry, but, but, it's one but, o'clock. We're closing for lunch. I, I saw it. I saw it. What? What? I, I saw it over there. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Yes. B-O-D-I-E-S. Yes. M-A-Y-E-R. Yes. Yes, well, we do have that, as a matter of fact. The expurgated version. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch that. The expurgated version. The expurgated version of Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Mayer? The one without the Lutherans. The, the one without the Lutherans? They've all got the Lutherans. It's a standard religious body. The Lutherans are in all the books. Well, I don't like them. They baptize infants. All right, I'll remove it. Any other religious bodies you don't like? I don't like the Presbyterians. Uh, the Presbyterians, right. Presbyterians. There you are. Any others you don't like? Any others? The Methodists. The Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists. Ah, uh, yeah, they are. There you are. No Lutherans, no Presbyterians, no Methodists. There's your book. I can't buy that. It's torn. <laughs> I-, I wonder if you have... Um... No, go on. Ask me anything. You've got lots of book here. You know, it's a bookshop. How about Osteen brushes his teeth? No, no, we don't have that one. Funny. Uh, the Gospel According to Rob Bell. No, no, no. Try me again. Uh, I know. Uh, Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. No, no, no. What, what, what? Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. Martin Chemnitz is two natures. Yes! We got it! I seen it somewhere! Yes! I found it here! Got it! Yes! Here we are! Martin Chemnitz's Two Natures in Christ! There's your book! Now buy it! I don't have enough money. I'll take a deposit! I, I don't have any money! I'll take a check! I, I don't have a checkbook! I got a blank one! I don't have a bank account! Right! I'll buy it for you! There we are! There's change! There's some money for a taxi on the wait, way home! There's wait! Your book. Wait! Wait! What? 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 I can't read! You can't! Read. Right? Sit down. Sit down. Sit, sit. Are you sitting comfortably? Right. Chapter one. Because the person of the incarnate Christ is made up of two natures, the divine and the human, 
united into one hypostasis that follows from this a communion of attributes. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if you're not getting the goods. What I mean by that is the gospel, the good news of Christ for you. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you would like to partner with us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And if you would like to uh, specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 460. All right, here's the uh, balance of our lecture with Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis, Christianity America, the 19th Century Romantics and Radicals. Here we go. Well, second question, what led many to abandon the rationalism of the Enlightenment, secular and in the church, and the tempered enthusiasm of the early revivalists? Well, simple, and I think I put it on your sheet. It was a misunderstanding or a sloppy construction of both rationalism and revivalism. They thought they understood what it was, and rationalism was cold and calculated, and nope, that's no good. We need something with feeling. So they go the way of the romantics. Okay, Edwards, Whitfield, and the like, that was nice, the Great Awakening. But what were the fruits of your Great Awakening? Now only 10 to 15% of the, of the church, of the population goes to church. And so, as I said last week, when Americans fail, what do they do? Try, try again. Absolutely. So we're going to have a second Great Awakening. Where was the church at this time? Of course, as Christians, we know that Christ has made the promise such that there will always be a church. And he will be with us until the end of the age. 
But the church, the confessing church, was either speaking another language, was, I, was perhaps not conversing or speaking with an American accent, as we talked about a few weeks ago. And so the Reformation heritage of Protestantism starts to become deformed. That is, sola scriptura, right? Scripture alone. That's what the Protestants preached. What does that become? It becomes biblicism. Biblicism, a worshiping of the Bible in a, in a strange way. The idea that sola scriptura, scripture alone, that's fantastic. You can ask pastor about that. That's our authority. But a biblicism creeps into the 1800s, into the 19th century, where every answer you need is in the Bible. I, I didn't grow up Christian, so it wasn't too long ago. I learned about something uh, kind of wacky called uh, lucky dipping. Do you guys know what that is? Lucky dipping? I shouldn't tell you. You might do it. Okay. Um, so this... Okay, I'll tell you real fast. Don't do it. Uh, okay, should I date so-and-so or not? Uh, okay, that says that the... Uh, oh, all right. Apparently, I should date Susie, even though this has something to do with, uh, you know, the lost tribes or something. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's... Don't do it. Um, but it's a sort of biblicism. The Bible has every answer you need. Wondering about this or wondering about that? Wondering about God's will for your life? Wow, go to the Bible and it'll tell you. You hear me? That's the biblicism. Sola Scriptura deformed into biblicism. The priesthood of all believers. Pastor Rody, that's what Luther preached, right? Not really. <laughs> but we like that idea. The priesthood of all believers. We're all priests. Well, that becomes... Or that leads to the democratization of Christianity. That is, every man is his own theologian. After all, I'm a priest. You're a priest. We're all priests. Oh, we don't like that. That's Catholic. I'm a preacher. You're a preacher. We're all preachers. We're all theologians. And when you have untrained Baptists and Methodists primarily in the frontier, where the majority, where the large population of Americans are going, what's going to happen? Every man is his own theologian, and there are going to be as many theologies as there are people. Can you see the connection at all to where we're going to the 21st century? I hope you do. I'm, being, I'm just nailing you on the head with this. Secondly is the problem of primitivism. Primitivism. What is that? Oh, did I use that word on the thing? Well, I can do that. Uh, society is going to hell. Right? In the 1950s, I wasn't alive then, but in the 1950s, I hear from my parents and the like, everything was perfect, right? Everything was great, and the, the man, I don't know if some of you were around back then, uh, I don't think anyone here, uh, we all, we're all young, and, and, uh, and the, the lawns were manicured, and nobody fought, or there weren't curse words on television, and everyone was watching Leave it to Beaver, and the like. Um, that's what I've heard, and, and today is just this secular, awful time. Let me tell you something about history, because I... I I, you know, read a lot of it. Every single group or every single time period commits this same dumb idea. Commits this same, or holds to, this same dumb idea. That was, if we could only go back to the past. I, I've said somewhat facetiously. I'll say it again. Um, if you go to a church or a small group Bible study or something, uh, and their focus is on one of two books of the Bible, you may want to leave. 
I'm, I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying it's an indicator. Okay, I'm just a, a historian who looks. I'm not a theologian. Uh, no college. The book of Acts and the book of Revelation. It is God's word. It should be studied. But if a Bible study group is focused and, and just, I've, I've seen these and it's all about the book of Acts. Why are so many evangelical groups and people that are convinced in the 19th century, in the 18th century, why are we fascinated with the book of Acts? Why do we have sermon series 57 weeks on the, the book of Acts? Does anyone want to guess? Because that's when the church was pure. That's when the church was pure. Go read Acts and see if, it's, if the church is perfectly pure. But that's when they were sharing all things together and the preaching was good and da-da-da-da-da. The book of Acts, Revelation, that's for another time. We need to go back to the golden age. Society is going to hell in a handbasket. We must go back to a golden age. How are we going to define the golden age? Well, as we want to define it, as we're going to read history. There's a curious blend of the old and the novel. That is, we're going to sort of cherry-pick old things, and then we're going to take new invented things, and we're going to sort of smush them together. Keep that note when we talk about the emergent church, because we really see that there, where, hey, we're going to take some old, cool, churchy stuff, and then some new, made-up, churchy stuff, and we're going to put it together. That's for later, but I, that connection, that thing that we do, when we, when we look to the past as the model, it's usually our own bad idea or bad picture of the past. And they reject any kind of progress. After all, we need to look to the past. The way that this culture is going is bad. Except there is a kind of progress they believe in. Their own progress, Right? The, the novel ideas they're coming up with that's going to fix this age. What's the other thing we see? So, spiritual crisis, sure. Revivalism and radicalism. The problem of primitivism. And then the distinction between the head and the heart. I will admit to you right now, I've committed the sin of, of asking a question to which I do not know the answer. But, since forever... Christian groups have made a distinction between head knowledge and heart knowledge. And as we get into the 19th century, it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So that you, you, it's this or it's that. And we see it everywhere. We see it with pietists. We see it with Puritans. We see it with evangelicals. There is a right connection somewhere, the head-heart distinction. Ask your pastor. It, it really is, it, it's, it's so uh, pertinent that somehow just knowing something isn't good enough, and that's certainly true. The devils, right, the devils understand, the devils get it. But the, the distinction there, like I said, I don't have the answer to it. Now, for all of this, no one person is to blame. Well, kind of. There is one person to blame. Uh, it's, it's, it's just the American trajectory, American Christianity, that peculiar eccentric brand of Christianity. And if we want to blame one person, or if we want to center it around one person, it's a guy named Charles Finney. Maybe you've heard of him. There are evangelical uh, universities who have statues of him. There are evangelical Christian universities that 10 years ago in their bookstore were selling books about him, and this one student grabbed a whole stack of them and hid them behind all the other books? 
said too much. They were in our bookstore, Dan. Can you believe it? They had all this to Charles Finney, hero of the faith. I couldn't believe it. And I was much more animated back then. Uh, and I just, I, I took them all and I hid them behind all the other books. I uh, shake my fist. Um, why is Finney so revered? Because he had the new measures. He had a new way. Revivalism. He was, he was, he was going to get it. He could tell you exactly how to get people to, to sell out to the Lord, to give their heart to Jesus, to invite him into their, their, your heart. I don't know all the language. I didn't grow up there. But he told you how. He had these new measures. He said this, a revival isn't a miracle, nor is it dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is purely a philosophical result of the right use of the uh, constituted means, as much so as any other effect produced by the application of means. He talked about farmers growing uh, wheat, and he said, well, they have a scientific model for doing that, and we can do the same thing. You start out with the dark, with the dark lights and the music builds and the this and this and this and this, and all of a sudden people are shrieking and hollering and scared, and then you swoop in with the message that, that tickles their ears. He, he said, this is scientific. I can convert people. We don't need miracles. It gets worse. Charles Finney, revered by many, was a heretic. Charles Finney, seen as a great example of someone who was preaching or at least reaching out to people, was a heretic. I put, I think these quotes are on your sheet. Yeah, they're there. What does he say about original sin? It's anti-scriptural and nonsensical dogma. Okay, that's, that's a problem. Um, that's a theological issue that we'll have with him. But what about the atonement? Read the quote and I'll read it to you. And hold on to your chairs. If he, Christ, had obeyed the law as our substitute, then why should our own return to personal obedience be assisted upon as the sin canon of our salvation? What's he saying there? Christ didn't die for the world or for other people. He died for himself. Because if he died for our sins, then why would, we, why would we follow him? Why would we be obedient? He is saying that Christ did not die for you. Pastor, Rody, is that a problem? Is that, is that, that becomes a heresy? Just a little one, absolutely. If you see a statue of Charles Finney at a school up north, uh, not Concordia, another one, uh, just kick it or something. Because this is bad stuff. He says, it is true, the atonement of itself does not secure the salvation of anyone. This is straight from his writings. So attack me all you want. Taking it from the heretic's mouth. But for sinners to be forensically pronounced just is impossible and absurd. You know what Finney was trained in? The law. He was a lawyer. And there's a story you may have heard where a gentleman comes to him and says, Oh, Mr. Finney, uh, Chuck, uh, I, need to, uh, I need you to defend me in this case or whatever. And Charles Finney had just had an experience in the woods. Uh, and, I don't know what kind. And, uh, he's in, and he's filled with something and says to the man, I will not defend your case. I will now only plead for the Lord. And then he goes out and scientifically he makes 
the world better again. He was a lawyer. He understood this kind of transaction that happens where someone is declared righteous in someone else's place, where a judge declares you innocent, and whether you are or not, right, the, the very nature of the gospel. He understands that, and he says, it is absurd. Christ did not die for the world. Is he an aberration of the Second Great Awakening? Just a little bit, but not by much. D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham. Now, I'm not going to make the, 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 the mistake of, of lumping these people together, but they all saw him, to some extent, as a hero of the faith, Charles Finney. As the second great awakening, as a time of, of evangelical zeal and fervor. But what do we see instead? No. It's romanticism and radicalism. Romanticism, look at that, that thing, right? You need a hero. It's feelings. It's unfettered. And this kind of revivalism, scientific, methodological revivalism. Well, right about the time of this happens, uh, the Civil War is going to take place, and we're not going to talk about that next week, but rather we're going to talk about what happens in the 1870s. What follows the Second Great Awakening? It's the birth of a movement. A new movement is going to start, and it's going to get a name. That is fundamentalism. All of this so far has been the sort of prolegomenon to fundamentalism. And that's where we're going. And, of course, many of you, some of you, uh, may have grown up in that or have experience with that because that still lingers. So radicalism and romanticism on the heels of rationalism and revivalism. I know it's a lot of ours. But then we're going to get down to it, to fundamentalism and the history of fundamentalism leading to today. So I'm going to stop there. I, I've just sort of da, 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 touched these things. But we've got questions. Jim Lowe is going to be walking around with the microphone, and I will answer or dodge as many questions as possible. All right, questions. We've got one over here. Cindy. It just seems to me that Christ is missing in a lot of this. Yeah, he's, he's, some, he's somewhere else. Yeah, and, and, be, and I think that's part of human nature, right? Listen, there's a, a financial crisis. Listen, there's a spiritual crisis. Listen, we've got, I mean, all of the things that I, I put on that list of things that, you know, you just think of as old historical facts. No, this, this leads to people wanting their better life now, to a purpose-driven life. And, yeah, I'm using those phrases on purpose. Joel Osteen, Rick Warren. All right, next question in the back. Yeah, I just wanted to ask about the the Catholic Church in America. Were they kind of uh, isolated from all of this, or were, did they just march on along with Rome? Very, or how, how were they affected? Question. Yeah, the, <clears throat> one thing is uh, the question of where were the confessional groups? Well, in many ways, they were literally speaking a different language, whether it be German or Dutch or Italian. Right? These are the immigrants that bring much of this uh, these, these various confessions over. And that's just a language issue. L let me go back to Alexis de Tocqueville. Because he said, he, he said, you know what? Roman Catholicism, and by that he just meant high church, is going to catch on at some point. 
Because this kind of stuff is going to pass. This stuff is kind of faddish. And he predicted that what he said, Roman Catholicism, I think better to say high church, that's going to catch on with the Americans when all these fads go away. When they keep looking to the past and searching to the past, finally they're going to find this. They're going to find something. And in fact, that's what we see in a lot of ways with new modern churches, um, such as the emergent church, which is a break off of, of the megachurch. So the Catholic Church was there, it was getting larger and larger, but it was segregated not only because of Protestant fear. Um, I mean, even into the 20th century, um, Al Smith ran for president, and what was the problem? What's one of the major reasons he lost? He was a Catholic. And so there still is a very strong anti-Catholic bent in America. And so they do best to, uh, and then of course there's going to be a later an anti-German um, so anti-Italian. And so we're going to find Catholics, Lutherans, especially ethnic ones, on the fringe of society. Yes, in the beginning uh, you mentioned a, the short time of, uh, span of time in the 1800s where we find all of the Seventh-day Adventists, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. Yes. Would, yes. that, would that be considered more or less a vacuum that was taking place at that time? And this is what fills this vacuum. That's a very good way of putting it. That's a very good way of putting it. Why, and this is a question I ask partly because I don't have an answer for it, but something weird happens that all of these aberrations and heresies would pop up at the same time. Is it because there was a vacuum? I think so. Is it because there was a lack of education? Yet, yeah, no offense, or offense, uh, to these groups. They tend to attract the, the uneducated. And all of a sudden, these groups, they're promising end times. They're promising results. They're promising a better family life. And that's what we're looking for, right? And they give answers. In many ways, it's, a, uh, it's, when we, it's, it's also a sectarianness. Um, is that a word? Where um, <clears throat> people say that everything is going to, to hell in a handbasket. And so where are the, the true believers? Oh, over here. Where is the, the, the newest thing? Oh, oh, America's the chosen land? I always thought so. That's why we came over here. And Jesus came to America, for, and, he, and he left a new Bible here? Hot dog. I knew we were the best. That's Mormonism, boys and girls, and that's a bad thing. Yeah, Denise. Well, just to piggyback on that, or is it because in America, unlike Europe, we had now the freedom. Does it have to do with freedom? You know, because in Europe, the, the church had control of the theology. So you have one instance where there's total control. Yeah. And then um, we come over here and we have complete freedom. By the time, that's, I, I don't think that's a bad answer. By the time we get to the 19th century, many European countries are going to have state churches. Uh, but theological matters, they're really going to just sort of let go of. Uh, that's why Germany becomes the mess that it does, uh, Schleiermacher and the like. Um, <clears throat> and everybody says yes. Um, <clears throat> and so that's part of it. But in America, uh, in, the, in the words of uh, you know, Fleetwood Mac, you can go your own way, right? You can do that. <clears throat> I'm really too young to know them, but I've heard it. Um, that, that, uh, that, right, you can, you, can, you can do this because that's American spirit, right? And so that's part of it. Uh, whereas if you're a radical in Europe and you're seen as dangerous, um, at least earlier, it's easy. You're just killed. Or where do you go? America. Yeah, like Australia was the penal colony. We're the bad theology colony. All right, I've got a question over here. I'm just, 
I'm just talking now. Uh, couldn't it be said that much of this was uh, simply the result of technology, exploding population, railroads, uh, steamboats, mobilities increasing, the people but, scattering yes. all over the place? Absolutely. And I, did, I wasn't going to bring this up because my students hate it because I talk about it too much. The Thirty Years' War and railroads. You can't underestimate the significance of railroads. Bad ideas spread fast. <laughs> and bad ideas are usually sexy ideas. Right? Get rich quick schemes. And so, yes, absolutely, you cannot underestimate the significance of trains. And, and, and if my son could, he'd be excited, but my students are like, oh, trains, whatever. But absolutely, Charles. Uh, good, you know, um, confessional theology isn't always sexy until you've been through the ringer of the new and the modern. Then you're looking for anything, any sort of lifeboat, any sort of real confession. We had another question back here. Dale Brandt. Yeah. Um, early on, you were, uh, you were criticizing the, uh, the circuit preachers as being just sort of tapped on the head. But isn't that the way Jesus shows his disciples? What's... He just sort of tapped them on the head and said, follow me and stuff. Uh, Pastor, are you, you putting too much, too much oh. emphasis on reason and education and stuff? Yeah. Dale, um, Dale? Uh, Jesus... Uh, can do what he wants. <laughs> Is that a good theological answer, Pastor? <laughs> Jesus does what he wants. Uh, what would Jesus do? Pick a bunch of uneducated people to preach to other uneducated? No. Well, maybe if he's Jesus and he's inspiring them. With, um, but, yeah, cool. The, have you been reading the book of Acts as the way to live your life better today? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, no, that's the problem, right? We see the old church, you know, economic models. What's the economic model of the early church? Well, it's communism, so that must be God's way. Mm. Jesus went out and just picked the, the lowly, but that's the way Jesus works. He picks the lowly. He picks uh, the mean. He picks the, the, the mean. Um, th that's, that's what he does. He comes in, in bread and, and wine and, and simple means. Um, Jesus has his own way of doing things, uh, but I don't think we should say, well, he didn't go to the universities to pick people, so we shouldn't. I think seminary is a very good idea, and education, as someone with a, uh, a doctorate, I think you would agree, uh, education is important. It helps. Well, it helps some, obviously. I'm just up here. Other questions? Yep, yeah, right here. Would it be fair to say that... Um, during the 1800s, as the various Scandinavian and German Lutherans came over and founded the various synods that were more or less confessionally in agreement, that the, these other groups began to infect their heresies into the various Lutheran groups and as they began to get away from confessional Lutheranism. Yes, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> Lutheranism, when it comes to America... Um, as I mentioned before, it comes up into its own little place and they speak their own little language and that's kind of a good thing because it's initially not affected by these weird American things. But the, the Lutheran church, to speak to Americans, had to learn to speak American. Speak in an American way. We say English, but nevertheless. Um, they needed to do this. And the problem is the Lutheran church, in trying to translate its theology to an American audience just picked up a lot of American theology. 
And that's the story of, of many Lutheran churches in America today. And we're going to get, when we get to the, the, the 20th century, we're going to talk about this <clears throat> fascinating thing within the Lutheran church where there was a, a modernist uh, advance on the LCMS itself. And the LCMS became the only church in American history to withstand modernism. The LCMS, that's sometimes called Seminex, became the only church to say, you guys out. But the other synods, they said, ah, come in. It works. And that's, that's what happened to most Lutheran synods. Uh, and that's why I think many of us have chosen Missouri Synod, because we've done a pretty decent job, at least sometimes in certain churches, at fighting uh, that American uh, influence. Okay, well, I'm going to stop there. Uh, next week, we're going to pick up and we're going to get to fundamentalism and the birth of fundamentalism. Um, and then uh, we'll, we'll go from, uh, from there. So thank you very much. We'll talk to you later. Great lecture. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and the mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.